0: You're listening to another New Hope Chapel Podcast. Podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Julie Coleman.
1: Well good morning. Last week we started the book of Romans, and it's going to be uh, quite a journey going through this wonderful gospel um, that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. Um, Just to remind you that uh, he was writing to the Romans to introduce himself to them, to prepare them for a future visit from him. But most importantly, he was writing for an unspoken reason. And we can figure out what the reason was he was writing, the issue at hand, from the things that he says, how he answers the issue. Um, The Jews and Gentiles were uh, very different from each other. They were very different in their culture. They were very different in what they prioritized. And so it was hard because God had called both Jew and Gentile to the church. And so there was this conflict that was going on uh, within the groups, trying to blend so many different cultural ideas and and priorities and be able to worship together as one. And this was not a problem that was uncommon. It was common through many of the churches. You see it as a theme that runs through many of Paul's, letters to the different churches there um, in the region. So anyway, that, that that's what Paul was writing. He was writing to give the Roman Christians a uh, theological basis for unity. Um, the Jews had been um, expelled from Rome back in AD 49 and they had been away from the church for five years. And so the Gentiles were there running the church, adapting the church. You know, the church morphs. It's a living organism. It's made of people. And so as the years went on Some of the customs of the Jews were definitely dropped, didn't mean anything to the Gentiles, and so they ended up looking very different when the Jews returned after the emperor died that it ousted them. And so now the Jews came back with all their customs and ideas intact, but the church had changed. And so you got this conflict between the two groups and how they were going to blend and and, kind of readjust themselves and be able to... um, Worship in unity. So Paul writes this theological base for unity. And he starts the theological section, which is the vast majority of his letter to the Romans, with this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So last week, we looked at chapter 1, where Paul basically started addressing the Gentiles. Um, The Gentiles apparently, in some ways, felt very superior to their Jewish brothers and sisters, because after all, the Jews had the law. They knew better. But we, we were ignorant. We didn't know. And so they kind of felt that they were a little bit superior about that. But Paul stopped them in their tracks. Um, He reminded them that God had revealed himself to the Gentiles through his creation. He revealed his divinity and he revealed his power. But even with that knowledge, Gentiles had rejected God and had gone off into this downward spiral of sin and idol worship. And so the Gentiles were guilty. They were guilty about knowing uh, knowing about God and then rejected him. But now Paul turns his attention to the Jews, lest they get overconfident. (laughs) now in order to understand this section of Romans, if you have your Bibles, do open to Romans chapter 2 because I'm going to be referring to some verses and not always have them up on the screen. So it would be great for you to keep it open to that. But Paul starts to write this section with a literary style called a diatribe, a diatribe. And it's sort of like, it was very common in those days, and it was sort of like a dialogue between him and some imaginary person. And it was a style of literature that was used very frequently with the philosophers and the teachers of Paul's day. So this would have been no surprise to anybody who was reading his letter. Here's some of the elements of the diatribe. There's frequent questions. And you'll notice if you read through Paul's writing, you get that a lot. How can it be? And he asks questions and then he answers them. Well, that's because he's using this diatribe style. He also has emphatic rejections to possible objections to a line of argument. Um, You'll see it later on in Romans where he keeps saying, may it never be. Okay, and that's kind of that emphatic <laughs> rejection. Um, there's also, um, he directly addresses someone like he's speaking back and forth to this person. And you don't hear what they say, but you hear his answer. Um, and then the last thing is that the conversation partner or, or opponent is, also, is often rebuked by exposing his presumption or inconsistency of his line of thought. So it's basically a method of arguing a point with an imaginary opponent. And you're going to see that as we read through Romans chapter 2. This is exactly what Paul's doing. And it does shed some light on some of the things that he says. Most likely, Romans 2 reflects conversations that Paul had in the past with people. And, And so now he's just kind of remembering what the Jews would have given as their argument against what Paul is saying. And so he's now um, looking at that. So before we look at Romans 2, let's pray and ask God's help, and then we'll start off in this passage together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book of Romans and the wonderful message that it gives. We're saved by grace alone. And that grace and our need of grace is the great equalizer. Lord, this is kind of a hard passage, so I just ask your help that you would help me to explain it clearly. And that um, I would not get in the way of the truth that you mean to portray with these words. And uh, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to give us spiritual understanding and guidance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we'll take a look at Romans 2, 1-5. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation on the righteous judgment of God. So Paul is now calling to attention to the um, Gentiles. You're not off the hook either, boys and girls. (laughs) You're not off the hook because you're standing in judgment. You're feeling superior over the Gentiles because they had this downward spiral into sin but you are just as guilty as they are of those things. And if you're wondering what these things are, you can look back at uh, 1 and uh, chapter 1, the very end of chapter 1, the very last set of sins that Paul talks about were things like um, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, and on and on and on. All these sins that the Gentiles have committed, well, the Jews were guilty of many of the same Sins themselves. So, and, and so now Paul is talking to the Jews and saying, don't think you're so superior, my friends. Um, you're just as guilty as they are. Um, and you can kind of see in verse 3, remember I told you that there's direct addresses in a diatribe. He says, do you suppose this, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things? So it definitely changed his, who he's talking to from Gentile to Jew. Um, he's talking in first person singular as a direct address. And he's kind of answering an a imaginary person who's representing that line of thought. So he, Paul presents a logic here in these verses. He says, you're guilty of the same sin. So when you judge them, you're actually condemning yourself by saying that they deserve it. Because God judges sin. And if you're guilty of that sin, he's going to judge you as well. So he kind of gives that logic. In other words... Jews and Gentiles, it's a level playing field. Everyone is guilty, and everyone stands to be judged by God. Now, in order to prove his point, Paul now has to debunk some commonly held beliefs um, that were held by the Christians that made them feel that they were, the Jewish Christians, that made them feel they were above judgment um, themselves as they were the Jews. So Paul sets out to debunk the Jews' pre prepos- uh, prep- excuse me, Presumptions. He debunks the Jews' presumptions. Well, what are these presumptions? What are these things that are um, Paul's imaginary partner? What incorrect notions do the Jewish Jews hold? The first one is this they would think, We are God's chosen people. He's not going to judge us. We're His chosen ones. Now, this presumption reminds me of a time when I was uh, directing a children's choir back in a church, several churches ago, that we were involved in. I was a lot younger. And um, I had this one little boy in the choir, there was like 60 kids in this choir, who was always making trouble, always being disrespectful, making comments, being distracting, just being a real pill. (laughs) So I had had it after about the third or fourth rehearsal, and I took this kid aside. And, you know, I was a teacher back then, so I expected children to listen to me. And I told him that being in the choir was a privilege, not a right. And if he did not um, conduct himself in a way that was uh, appropriate, that he was not going to be able to continue to be in the choir. And this little nine, ten-year-old, I don't remember how old he was, put his nose up in the air and he said to me, do you know who I am? <laughs> well, his mother was on the board of elders for the church. And I said to him, yes, I know exactly who you are. As a matter of fact, I know your mom really well. And she will not be happy to hear that you're causing problems for this choir. Well, that's seven straight. <laughs> but just that presumption that he was somehow safeguarded against having to behave like everyone else, because his mother was an elder, that kind of presumption had that same sense of entitlement to it that the Jews had as they thought about their relationship with God. And the literature, very popular at that day, the, the uh, literature that kind of was written between the Old Testament and the time that the New Testament was written, um, confirm this idea. Paul's argument actually parallels a passage in one of those books, a book called Wisdom. It's 15, to 4 and it says this, But thou, our God, art kind and true, patient, and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we, see, if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. That assumption of God's special favor had grown into a very false sense of security. The Jews thought they were beyond judgment. So Paul rejects this idea. And I know it's this idea because in verse 3 it says, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? And again in verse 17 he says, you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. So he's got that idea In mind as he's writing. Well, Paul gave them a real dose of reality to this idea. In verse 5, he says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. God judges everyone by that same standard. Now, Paul explains what the standard is. So we're going to read now verses 6 to 10. And this is what it says. Uh, I'll start a little bit earlier. You're stirring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. I have to tell you, these verses just about killed me this week. (laughs) Because I first read them and I thought, what is happening here? It looks like God is or Paul is saying if you're good, you'll go to heaven, and if you're bad, you'll go to hell. Well, salvation isn't based on works, is it? Not hardly. Because Paul says, even just in the next chapter, by the works of the law, the flesh will excuse me, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's one thing he says. And later in the letter to Ephesians, and this is probably a very uh, familiar verse to most of you, by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul has made it very clear in other parts of the Bible that we are saved through grace alone and we could never work our way to salvation. And yet these verses are here. Paul wouldn't contradict himself. So, what does he mean by these verses? Well, I had to really struggle with this. (laughs) I'll tell you, I lost a lot of time this week getting ready for this message on these four verses. But in my um, research, I found out several things that were really, really helpful to me. And I really think I've come up with what God meant um, these verses to say for us today. The first is something I learned in seminary. I noticed as I started to look at these verses that they were something, uh, they, they followed something that's known as a chiastic structure. Um, the the letter chi in Greek is an X looking thing and so that's where the chiastic structure comes out. Each of these verses uh, falls into a pattern. It starts with A then another verse B, so there are two separate points being made, then B gets repeated and then A gets repeated. So you get this A B, B, A pattern right? Um, And so that's what Chaotic structure is it's a common literary device, and it's very helpful. Um, if we can go to the next slide, these are this is the way the verses break up. The first one says, "To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life." We can pair that up with verse ten. It gets repeated again a little bit differently but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see some of the common language there and the same idea. So those two go together. And then if you look at the two middle verses, 8 and 9, say this, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, and then there will be tribulation, distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So B and B go together. You see how that works? Now, the reason why this um, kind of a structure is important is that it enables us to take two verses written about the same thing and kind of compare. They kind of explain each other. So it's important to be able to put them together. So I want to start with the A verses, um, the first and the last in this little section. Okay. So the key to understanding this whole thing is by finding out what it means by doing good. To them who do good, right? So we have to figure out what that means. Well, the language here is very important to figuring out what doing good means. The first important word is the word perseverance. Um, The little translation of that Greek word is patient, waiting, enduring. And the concept is almost always in the Bible related, closely related, or used with the concept of hope. So you're persevering until this thing happens that you're hoping for, right? Um, It's used like this in the New Testament by Paul. In Romans 8, uh, 23 to 25, it says, We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You get that idea of hanging in there, doing what you have to do, um, until this thing that you're hoping for comes. Perseverance. Second, what the person doing good is seeking is important. And those things were listed twice. Glory, honor, and immortality. Now, all three of these things, glory and honor and immortality, are always uh, spoken of, taught of, in terms of God's gifts. Not something that we do ourselves, but something that's given to us, right? Um, They're God's gifts in scripture. and Romans uh, 9.23 kind of makes that clear. If he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. So it's something that's given to us. All three of these things are eschatological terms. In other words, they're given when our time on earth is at the end, when the resurrection of Jesus comes Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown as a perishable body. It is raised as an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So you get that idea that these are things that are going to happen um, at the end. So glory, honor, and immortality be given at the resurrection. And they're all gifts from God. Okay, so you pair those things together. perseverance, Perseverance toward the thing that you hope for. And then the idea of these things that are given to us as gifts at the resurrection. I really think that Paul is saying here that immortality will be given to those who put their hope in the gifts that God will give at resurrection. They don't regard good works as an end to themselves, as something they're doing to earn something. They understand that good works are marks not of achievement, but of their hope in God and the things that he's going to give them. They're the ones who are going to be rewarded. All right, to further understanding what Paul's saying, now let's look at the B statements. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So we've got this idea of doing evil, of selfish ambition, not obeying the truth and obeying unrighteousness. Okay, so what things... Again, the language is going to give us some clarity as to what's being judged. The first is that term that's translated as selfish ambition. It's translated from a Greek word whose root means, get ready for this one, a hireling. They're people who are working for pay. They're earning something by their work. In other words, they've decided salvation is in their own hands, and they're going to do what it takes to get it. So rather than trusting in God, they're trusting in their own work, in themselves. That's really important. (laughs) The second part, he said, they don't obey the truth. Well, the truth is, God is holy. We can never measure up. We need to trust in God's grace. The Jews were trusting in the law, keeping the law as their means to salvation. But as Paul says later in 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So basically, what I believe Paul is expressing in these four verses, and I want you to note the uh, repetition of this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's for B. And then again for A. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in other words, God will judge everyone by the same standard. And in that standard, it's faith. Alone in God for our salvation. And then Paul sums it up with this verse 2:11, "For there is no partiality with God. We're all measured by the same thing. So what's Paul's response then for that first misconception? Your status depends not on your race, but on where you placed your hope. That's what God is looking for. If it's in themselves and achievements, they're condemned. But if it's in him, in his provision, in his gift, then the reward will be return, eternal life because the standard is sustained same for everyone. So that's the first uh, presumption that Paul debunks. Now we go on to the second one. They would think we were entrusted with the law. This is something that makes us special, puts us apart. The law was a source of pride for the Jews because it was something that God had entrusted them. Now, I'm not going to read through the of time, but in verses 12 to 24, um, he talks about this, and he says, the, law surely, uh, ha- the Jews believe that having the law surely showed that God had preference toward the Jewish people. It made them better than the Gentiles. Well, possession does nothing for you if you don't actually use it. And I was thinking, if, and I don't, but if I had a gun... <laughs> And I bought a gun for protection um, against people that might enter my house in the middle of the night and kept it in the drawer. Possession would do nothing for me if, if when I heard a noise downstairs, I didn't take the gun out of the drawer and bring it with me when I went to confront whoever was down there. Right? If it was in the drawer, it's not going to help anybody. Well, that's the same thing that happened. And I don't own a gun, don't worry. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the same thing that Paul was basically telling the Jews. It's not the hearers of the law who are before God but the doers of the law will be justified. Possession doesn't do anything for you. You have to actually do something with what you have. Now, just a note here that you will see that last word of that verse, justified. It is a big word in Romans. It's used for the very first time right here in this verse. In English, when we think of justification, we think of giving a reason, some circumstance or excuse to justify an action or an attitude, Right? But in the Greek, the term has a very different meaning. It's actually a judicial term used in the courts, and it talks about the status of someone as innocent, they're justified, um, being declared innocent. In other words, the judge bangs his gavel, and he declares that person innocent of all charges. We're going to hear this term a lot in the book of Romans, but this is just kind of an introduction to it. But Paul says the ones that don't just hear the law but do the law will be justified, will be declared innocent. But the problem is, is nobody can make that claim. Who among us can say, oh, I've never sinned? (laughs) Yeah, at least in the past two minutes. Oops, I just sinned again. (laughs) But anyway, that's what happens. We we are uh, sinning all the time. So Paul reminds them this. He said... You knew God's will, you knew the law, you considered yourself a teacher to others. But then in verse 21 to 24, he kind of points a finger at them. He says, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So Paul's response to that second idea of, hey, we were given the law. That makes us a step above anybody else. This is his response. He says, the Jews may have possessed the law, but possession alone will not earn justification. You have to do what it says. And in that, my friends, you have failed miserably. So he debunked their claim of status being Jewish and being um, immune to God's judgment. He debunked their claim of, hey, we own the law. It was, it, it, God obviously had something special in mind for us. And now he has one more claim that he debunked, And this is it. Well, we've been circumcised. We've been marked as God's people. Obviously that makes us better than the Gentiles. Well, God, talking about circumcision a bit, God... Um, after making his covenant, Abraham told him to circumcise himself and every male descendant as a mark that would uh, stand as making them as God's people. And he told um, Abraham this, it should be the sign of the covenant between me and you. But circumcision was just an external sign, an outward sign, of what should have been an inward condition of their heart. Um, As a matter of fact, as they're about to enter the promised land, God reminds them of this in Deuteronomy. He says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. God wanted circumcision to be something more than just some outward external thing. He wanted it to be a reflection of what had happened inside. So going through the motions, getting an external mark isn't enough. Jeremiah warned of this too. He says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Without inward faith to God, outward circumcision is meaningless. Remember what God said to Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. heart. Right, exactly. And he uh, confirms that uh, the very last verse of chapter 2. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart. So he makes that uh, very clear with the rest of this um, part of the chapter. So Paul's response to um, their last presumption, Circumcision is merely an outward sign. God judges the heart. So being a Jew didn't make them any different than the Gentile, at least in God's eyes. None of these things, being the chosen people, possessing the law, being circumcised, could result in justification. Faith alone was going to save them. They and the Gentiles were on the same level playing field, needing the grace of God. So, what can we glean from this passage today? Paul spends the entire chapter talking about why the Jews were in no position to judge the Gentiles. Well, why did they feel the right to judge them? And this is really important to us today. They felt the right to judge because they had a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. They were one up on their fellow believers, and so they felt justified in being able to point the finger. Now, we like to judge. At least, I don't know about you, but I like to judge. I like to judge. And the reason I like to judge is because it makes me feel better than the person I'm judging. It puts me one up on them. And it makes me feel important. Maybe even sometimes, if I phrase it the right way, more spiritual than they are. And so, but that feeling of superiority can only happen if we have false standards. Now, I'm a woman who loves to do laundry. I know, I know, I'm crazy one of those things. I also like doing dishes. I like doing things where I can do it and be done and go, hey, I did something, <laughs> and feel pride in how well it was done. Laundry was one of those things. Now, I had three little boys, and we live in Maryland, so Maryland clay was an issue for every batch of laundry that I did. And laundry would get stained, and, and especially the socks. Socks were always, you know, because they'd end up getting mud all over their socks, and they'd come inside, maybe orange, and I'd have to bleach them out. I would pre-soak. I worked really hard at making the laundry clean. And I was pretty proud of myself. And as I'd put those socks back in the drawers all folded and clean, they would look really nice. And I'd think, yeah, I did a good job getting all the dirt out of there. Until I would buy a new set of socks and put them in the drawer next to the ones that I had been washing and so dutifully cleaning. And all of a sudden, I could see a huge difference between my supposedly clean socks and the brand new ones. Now, the reason was I was comparing the old socks with each other. But when I got the new clean socks in there, now all of a sudden the standard had changed. Well, we, when we're judging, we're comparing ourselves with someone else. Two dirty socks. and Instead of having that standard of holiness that God has, we can find ways in which we are superior to the other sock, right? Um, God knew this was a problem for the Jews, and so when he called Isaiah to come, and prophesied to them. He wanted Isaiah to be really clear in his head what he was about to do. And so what does he do? In chapter 6, God gives Isaiah a vision of his holiness. And all of a sudden, Isaiah is looking at God's holiness, and he realizes just how bad he is and how bad his people are. And he throws himself on the ground He says, "'Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips.'" All of a sudden, it becomes very clear to Isaiah when we're not comparing with each other down here, but we start looking at the holiness of God, suddenly there's a huge gap. Well, that's what happens when we judge. We have to be very careful what our standard is. If our standard is God's holiness, then we're not going to like to stand on because we'll know that we don't need to match that either. So, when we're tempted to judge, principle number one, make sure you use the correct standard. Don't be delusional and compare yourself with, and get some false sense of entitlement, but instead it's not something you've achieved over someone else. Because Isaiah said this, all of our righteous acts in reality are like filthy rags or dirty gym socks. <laughs> God's holiness is what we should set ourselves against, and that will quickly take away any entitlement that we might feel. That's principle number one. Principle number two is this. When tempted to judge, remember that you are equally guilty. You know, when a judge is convicted of a crime, he is immediately removed from the bench. Why? Because he himself has broken the law, and therefore he is not qualified to judge someone else. Paul pointed out this to the Roman Jews. He said, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Jesus put it another way. He said... Why do you look at the splinter that's in your brother's eye and not take out the log that's in your eye? Same idea. Our own guilt excludes us from any right to point our finger outward. And the last principle is this. When tempted to judge, remember, you were saved by grace. Undeserved merit. Paul reminded the Jews of this in the passage. Do you think lightly of his riches of kindness and tolerance and patience? When we understand that the grace of God unmerited favors what saved us, how then can we stand in judgment of someone else who's basically in need of the same thing? Grace. None of us could be good enough. None of us have the ability to be right with God. We all need grace. And if we were given grace, then we, our proper response to that gift is to give it generously to others. The opposite of judging is giving grace. It's the opposite And how do we give grace? Well, I thought of a couple of ways. We can forgive when there's no reason to do so. That's a tough one. Forgive someone when they don't even think they need forgiving. But that's grace. We can give someone the benefit of the doubt instead of always questioning their motives or what they're doing. We can give them the benefit of the doubt. We can find good in things rather than being predisposed to complain. You know, we have settings that we're on. Some people are just ready to complain at a moment's notice other people are ready to uh, find the good in things. Kind of that glass half-full, half-empty kind of a mindset. When we freely give what someone or something does not deserve, we're administering grace. It's what we've been given. To end this little session, I want to tell you about a woman that I met several years ago. I was teaching at a retreat out in Ocean City. And this lady was kind of hanging in the background, as all the girls, we all was this great big house they had rented. There were probably 25 women there. And they all sat down for the Friday night service, and I was teaching, and I, I noticed she was really hanging on the outskirts. She came in just for the message, and then as soon as the message was over, she bolted and went out on the porch, and I could see her out there smoking cigarette after cigarette. So I made it my business to find out who she was. So I went in and met her, and she'd been coming to the church for a couple of months, but she said, you know, puffing on her cigarette, I, I'm really uncomfortable with, with being here. And I said, why? And she said, I don't fit in with this crowd. I said, really? Why do you feel that way? And she said, well, these women, they're really good. They really have it together. They have this relationship with God that I don't have. She said, they're so good. And I'm a mess. I'm a former drug addict, alcoholic. Um, I think she even fooled around with some prostitution for a while. I mean, she really had had a very rough life. And now she's in this group and feeling awful. And I said, Rosie... Let me tell you the secret. <clears throat> First of all, you're dead wrong. All of us are a big mess. I said, if I could unzip my skin right now and let you see what's inside of me, you would be disgusted. I said, we all are in the same state. We all are a mess. That's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from that and bring us new life. And what we have and what we are are because of him. Not because of anything we're doing. And um, she did eventually, um, I'm not sure if it was that weekend, but soon enough, um, come to know the Lord as her Savior. And uh, this last retreat I went on with this group, and I've done several with them, she was still following Him and, and doing great, so I was really excited for her. But when we compare ourselves to other people, it leads to insecurity, and it leads to despair and discontentment. But the standard is not other people. The standard is God's holiness. We can't hope to meet the standard. We're all equally guilty, and we're all saved by his grace. So in light of who we are and what God has done for us, we need to think long and hard about judging others. As Paul wrote the Romans, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. The gospel is the great leveler. It's about faith in the grace of God, not of anything we're doing, not of our superiority. And we should relate to others accordingly.